Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the Connecticut Certification Board's podcast, Scope of Practice, where we address any and all topics that fall within the world of substance use disorder prevention, treatment, recovery, and harm reduction. Our goal is to expose you to relevant information that affects and informs our work, but is otherwise not often addressed. If you're a returning listener, we welcome you back. And if it's your first time, then welcome. We hope you continue to listen. My name is Jeffrey Kwame. I am CEO of the Connecticut Certification Board and your host. The reality of our industry is that we have a significant pro 12-step bias and that anybody who looks at the fellowships with a critical eye is nothing less than a mutineer. Certainly, the number of individuals who have benefited from 12-step immersion continues to grow, and in the spirit of multiple pathways, that is an incredible thing. Another reality is that the fellowships are not themselves empowering to individuals. Individuals must give themselves to the program and ask God to remove defects of character and readily admit that they are powerless over alcohol, narcotics, etc. Those who struggle to accept that are considered constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And the big book goes on to say that these are such unfortunates. They're not at fault. They seem to have borne that way. They are incapable of changing and must simply deal with being victim of having dealt a, dad, uh, dealt a bad hand. It's clear to see how many would reject this premise as they seek in to move into recovery. But again, multiple pathways. But what is available and what are they? Our guest today will talk about one such pathway. Pete Rubinos is the executive director of Smart Recovery and previously served as a Smart Recovery participant, facilitator, and regional coordinator. He comes to his current position with a diverse set of experiences that he plans to use to help Smart Recovery USA thrive. Pete's last position saw him lead a local Montessori nonprofit from one-room private preschool into a thriving private preschool and public charter school serving children through the eighth grade. In that role, he did extensive work creating an effective governance structure across three separate nonprofit organizations to keep the community focused on its mission while complying with the requirements of being a public school. Prior to that, he spent 10 years as an internal control auditor and consultant at Price Waterhouse Cooper. He believes that smart recovery should be available in every community and to individuals from all walks of life. He has studied how power is held in organizations and how to shift that power so that more voices are included in decision-making that occurs. He passionately believes that empowerment is the ultimate goal in supporting those with addictive behaviors and those who love them. If we stay collectively focused on empowering one another at all levels of an organization, Someday Smart will be a household name, and the demographic of those they serve will have expanded dramatically from where they started. A graduate of University of Notre Dame, go Irish! Pete has worked hard to build a balanced life that includes time for his family, birding, native pollinator gardening, and running. He continues to facilitate a local smart recovery meeting and an online family and friends meeting at Chapel Hill on an involuntary basis. His mantra is, you are enough. And welcome to the program, Pete. Really glad to have you. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so let's start at the beginning. Can you give us a quick history of smart recovery and what does the acronym stand for? Yeah, sure. Uh, so SMART is approaching its 30th anniversary as a national nonprofit that uh, was formed um, to provide an alternative uh, recovery pathway at the time. Um, and, and it's really, it's dedicated to training and supporting individuals to lead free self-empowering mutual support group meetings for anyone struggling with any problematic addictive behavior. SMART stands for self-management and recovery training. 
It is grounded in cognitive behavioral and motivational enhancement science and offers a suite of practical tools via a handbook um, that are discussed in free mutual support group meetings that are led by those trained facilitators. Those tools are organized into four points. Uh, those points are not sequential steps toward a finish line, uh, but rather an iterative approach that participants use to construct a sustainable, balanced life uh, beyond their addictive behavior. Uh, those four points are, number one, building and maintaining motivation. Number two, coping with urges and cravings. Number three, managing thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And number four, living a balanced life. We also have specific programs, Inside Out and Successful Life Skills, that have adapted the four-point program for use in correctional and transitional living settings, as well as a program for affected family members and friends called Smart Family and Friends that combines strategies from SMART and CRAFT or Community Reinforcement Approach Family Training. There are now over 1,000 SMART meetings across our country, as well as meetings in 37 other countries around the world. Those meetings are a mix of in-person and online, local and national. And we also support meetings that target specific audiences, such as LGBTQIA plus individuals, BIPOC individuals, women, veterans and first responders, and Spanish-speaking participants. Well, that's pretty uh, comprehensive. I didn't understand the scope uh, beforehand, uh, the scope of, of smart recovery. One of the things that you just said that jumped out at me is uh, the use of motivational interviewing and the use of cognitive behavioral techniques. And what I think that makes smart different in a way that you're taking into account the brain science. We recognize how the brain becomes a part of it. In other support groups, it's kind of taken, uh, the action of the brain is kind of taken out of the equation you keep it right in there by with techniques that actually affect how someone thinks and, and to train their own thinking and I, I find that fascinating uh, what is it from your perspective about smart that attracts people seeking recovery yeah, i think there's a a, a variety of uh, reasons that individuals arrive at a smart meeting um as you just mentioned i think some folks find it helpful uh, to have a mutual support group approach that uses language consistent with what they're hearing in their therapist's office. Uh, many individuals appreciate not needing to adopt a label to participate. You're able to define uh, your problematic behavior however you choose. Uh, and in fact, stigmatizing labels like alcoholic, addict, enabler, etc. are generally discouraged in our meetings. Others appreciate the opportunity to explore recovery without having to confront any religious language. Uh, however, whatever the reason someone initially tries SMART, I think most end up finding the non-judgmental empowerment offered by the community of individuals in the meeting to be the reason that they keep coming back. Do you see a lot of uh, young people at the meetings? Because I know that when somebody's you know, under the age of 30, uh, I'll say, you know, there's that feeling of that they are all powerful. <laughs> and the powerlessness is a difficult thing for somebody who's younger to kind of adopt and, and understand. Yeah, we do see a wide range of, of age ranges in our meetings. Uh, I do think that it is uh, difficult for young people um, not just to accept powerlessness, but also to accept uh, a lifetime label. If you have you know, a, a, a long life ahead of you, I think it's a lot harder to say, I, I'm going to define myself this way for the rest of my life. 
Um, and, and since they don't have to do that to participate in our meetings, I think that's one of the reasons that, that they may find a, a home in SMART. Yeah, with empowerment being key, obviously, uh, I was surprised to see such disempowering language throughout the entire continuum of care, starting with prevention. We recognize how it skews the message towards helplessness, hopelessness, and, and ultimately victimization. Um, what is different about SMART and perhaps other routes that, that see strength in people? Yeah, interestingly, before taking this position, uh, I was enrolled in a Master's of Clinical Mental Health Counseling program uh, that, that I have not completed. But as I explored the continuum of care, care from the perspective of being a, a future clinician, I was... Uh, pretty discouraged at times by the disempowering language and practices that seem to be the norm uh, rather than the exception in the field. Um, that said, I, I see a lot of hopeful signs that the tide is turning. Uh, I see a lot more conversations happening uh, that that are acknowledging the the problems that exist with some of the uh, the, the status quo uh, approaches to working with those uh, who have an addictive behavior. Um, and I'm also very proud to be part of an organization that really has been at the forefront of treating those who struggle with addictive behaviors as whole human beings uh, from from the time that it was incorporated. Uh, we have, uh, you know, had the the position of discouraging labels um, uh, for for many years at this point. Um, and and I also love that we're not just focused on ending a problematic behavior. Uh, but instead, you know, building that balanced life beyond um, the problematic behavior in a way that's consistent with how one conceives of themselves and and their own values. Um, and I think that that just, uh, you know, it really hits you in a different way than, um, you, you know, than, than powerlessness does. And I think in our continuum of care, when you look at what is the biggest hot button item right now, harm reduction. Arm reduction uses the most empowering language for people and encourages them to make their own decisions uh, and that they're going to support whatever that decision may be. Uh, and it's funny to me that that gets the most uh, uh, negative comment about it. Yep. So can we identify some of the disempowering and stigmatizing language used? To, uh, let's start with prevention. What's some of that language? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I think... <laughs> At least when I was growing up, it was pretty common to hear things like, uh, you know, just say no um, and, and to really use uh, fear uh, as uh, a tool for educating individuals about uh, drugs and, and people who use drugs. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we the, the evidence is clear that that those approaches don't work because young people uh, are not motivated by uh, fear. Uh, they're not motivated to change behaviors uh, based on fear. Um, and so uh, I think that's, you know, really for me on the prevention side of things, um, I think we've seen a lot of movement away from that type of language. Although, you know, there's been a recent, um, uh, I, I guess, resurgence of it uh, as as we think about fentanyl and, uh, you know, the, the significant impact that that has had uh, has kind of led us back down a, a pathway of of maybe increasing fear again. Fear and falsehoods. Um, mm -hmm. The stories coming from different police departments that an officer 
touched the bag of fentanyl and had to be hospitalized, something that has no basis in science. Um, but I, I, I do know from being associated with a lot of folks in the prevention space, they've really turned the corner over the last few years and look at whole person health. Um, and I think that when you have somebody going to achieve something rather than escaping something, it, it's a much easier sell and much more uh, buy-in from the community. Yeah, and I think. In, in, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I think you touch on something there too. Or sometimes I think some of the the folks who are kind of at the leading edge of things in the field are ahead of our society as a whole. And and you know, like a lot of this stigmatization, uh, you know, it seems to be stickier uh, out in the broader community than it is with folks who are on the front lines trying to to help people. And, uh, yeah, like I said, the research and stuff in in prevention has is just incredible, and, and community organization and getting people involved in things they're be, be much better than it was uh, many years ago when I first came into the field. Uh, what about some of the language we hear in treatment? Yeah, I you know I've, I've visited many uh, treatment centers uh, over the last several years, and you know I would say to start with. Uh, the labels alcoholic and addict themselves when used in treatment setting settings, uh, you know, there, there's no denying that they define an individual as their behavior. Uh, and while I recognize that those terms have worked for many who have entered stable recovery, um, there are many who have not found them helpful and, um, and they aren't necessary for an individual to make progress in overcoming, um, an addiction. So, um, I, I would say that that's one, you know, I'm, I'm struck when I, I visit an IOP group, for example, and everyone around the room introduces themselves using a, a label like that. Um, just how unnatural it feels to me, given that my pathway uh, has been smart recovery. Um, you know, NIDID had done research in the past years where they estimated that 72, I think was the number, 72% of substance use treatment programs are 12-step based. And um, and, and no offense to the 12 steps and the people that they've helped, but the language, as we said earlier, is not that empowering. You have to be in a different space to be ready to go. And so when you've got somebody coming in in the worst shape of their life and they're, they're uh, being told, yes, there's some hope for you if you do it this way, that can be difficult. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, and instead of saying, what, giving a choice. Yep. No, and I think that relates to a couple of other phrases that I think of when I think about disempowering language in treatment settings. And, and that is, you know, the idea of treatment noncompliance uh, and, and this idea of zero tolerance policies to remain in treatment and aftercare programs. Um, and, and I really, you know, I, I, first of all, I don't think we uh, use those ideas in any other uh, healthcare setting. Um, and, and I don't think they're helpful in building individuals up, um, as they attempt to overcome a significant challenge in their lives. Um, so, you know, I, I think really thinking about why are we choosing to use the language that we're using? Um, what else could we say that would, um, uh, be more helpful to those who are, um, seeking recovery? Yeah, the non-compliance is, uh, that term to me, it, I struggle with because it means in reality, they're not meeting us where we're at. Well, and especially especially when paired with, uh, you know, a strong definition of addiction as a disease, right? So you you, you have a disease uh, where you're powerless, but you also are the one who's not compliant with your treatment. 
you know, you pair those two things together and it, I find it to be a very confusing message to hear as uh, an individual who's struggling. What about some of the language in the recovery community that can be stigmatizing? And to, to be honest, the, the recovery community has been at the forefront of changing language, uh, but there are still pockets where a lot of, of, the, of negative stigmatizing language is used. Yeah. I mean, I think we still hear plenty of, of the use of, of labels. Um, I, I think that there are still folks who who believe in in some version of rock bottom. They may have stopped using the term rock bottom because it's become uh, unpopular, um, but but where they you know think that someone has to get to some new low before they're going to to be willing to uh, engage in a recovery process. Uh, and then I think you mentioned one earlier. You know the the idea of of character defects, and you know I have friends who have been in stable recovery for uh, you know for many years who still refer to themselves as having character defects and. Um, Again, I, I, you know, it works for them. I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with it, even just hearing them talk about themselves in that way. So I can understand how others might have a hard time adopting that uh, perspective towards themselves. You know, my stepfather was sober for many, many, many years, and he did it through 12 steps, uh, and it worked well for him. And I grew up with the language and, and, the, uh, so I certainly couldn't say anything negative about it because I've seen it work and for friends yep. and colleagues. But again, it's if you choose to go that route, you know what you're getting into. If you're pushed into that route and you deal with the, the language, I think that's a little bit different. Yep. Uh, let's talk about stigma and its role in the care of recovery. You know, through the full spectrum, how does that affect? You know, the outcomes of, what are the outcomes of stigmatizing language? Yeah, I think, you know, most simply put, I think stigma keeps people from getting help in the first place. Uh, I was at a, a gathering on the 4th of July that, um, you know, all highly educated people in the room, um, and, and there were a number of, of jokes uh, batted around at one point in the gathering uh, about uh, that type of alcoholic versus this type of alcoholic. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, there were young people in the room and, and so, you know, just, um, thinking about, you know, a, a young person hearing that and then, you know, being willing to, to acknowledge that they have, uh, a problem with alcohol use. Um, you know, it, it, that, that stigma keeps, um, folks from, from seeking help. Um, and then if they do get help, um, I think stigmatizing language and concepts, can actually work against them, believing that they can overcome the struggles associated with their addictive behavior. Um, and there's been some research done that supports this, but I, I think that we've adopted some of the language that we have uh, to make ourselves feel better as a society, uh, rather than thinking about the language that is most helpful for those seeking recovery. Um, and so, you know, I, I think really it's, it's keeping, I think stigma keeps people from getting help. And then I think it keeps people from believing that they can overcome, uh, you know, a significant challenge in their life. Uh, one of my colleagues is the former single state agency director for many years in Connecticut. Her name is Patricia Reamer, and she doesn't even speak of stigma anymore because she goes right to discrimination. She says, if we talk about stigma. That may not change anything, but when we talk about the outcomes of stigma, then we see. 
The Civil Rights Act of 1964, although it is far from complete, wasn't put in, uh, into play, wasn't created because African-Americans were stigmatized, because they were discriminated against. She says, we have to change our narrative as well to elicit that change. Yeah. Um, and every time I say that, I, I give a nod to her when I hear her say that I just started a community forum and I was laughing, saying, those are my favorite words. <laughs> those are my favorite words. Nice. Um, so kind of moving into that, how do we change the narrative to a more powering one? Yeah, I think, you know, this is an interesting question because I think we've been getting guidance in this regard, at least since the Obama administration, maybe maybe even before that. But, you know, I'm, I'm aware of a memo in the closing days of, of his administration that made very clear, uh, you know, that uh, that stigmatizing language uh, should be eliminated from um, uh, our, our talking about those who use drugs and, and our support of those who struggle with them. Um, and, and I think that, you know, this really requires a, a lot of self-reflection by all of us, you know, by every member of our society, not just those working in prevention, treatment, and recovery. Um, I think we have to continue to explore the type of society we're building, uh, why we choose the language that we're choosing, uh, who is, a, you know, who is the language designed to help. Um, I, I always think about what can I say to this human being that helps them reclaim power and agency in their life rather than stripping them of it. Um, and, and for me that, you know, if I'm talking to someone who is struggling with an addictive behavior, that sounds something along the lines of, you know, you are a full human being who is struggling with a behavior that is preventing you from living your life in accordance with your values and the person that you want to become. Can I offer you some things to consider on your journey? It's just a, a different way of uh, of explaining, you know, uh, how I view you and what I'm willing to uh, where how I'm willing to meet you. Um, and so I just I think it honestly more than you know rules and training and and all of that. I think it just requires a lot of self reflection and, and being intellectually honest uh, with ourselves about the language that we choose to use. We have to understand that we don't live in a bubble and what we say and do has an effect, a ripple effect on other individuals and I need to take a look at it. And it's not always easy. I recognize that because so many of the, of the colloquialisms and things that we use can be stigmatizing and discriminatory and we don't do it with such intent. Yep. Um, but we also know that intent isn't what matters to our friends and neighbors. It's our behavior. Yep. Yep. Um, for those in our audience center, either counselors or their supervisors, uh, the ethical consideration that we identify as being primary is the autonomy of the client. We hold that most dear. Uh, looking at programming from each side of the coin, stigmatizing or not, disempowering, empowering, um, how does looking at autonomy, how does that affect our aspirations to practic practice ethically uh, let's start out first with a dis from a disempowering standpoint, and then move to an empowering. Yeah, I think you know this is a question I've spent a lot of time thinking about um, at, as I was proceeding through the training program I was in, and 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 now in my current role as executive director at Smart. Um, I actually think that many practitioners are uncomfortable with the disempowering language that they encounter 
uh, in the field. I, I believe that they want to adopt more empowering language as a part of their practice. And not just because ethical standards really demand it of them, but I believe because it feels better to empower folks than it does to disempower them. Um, that said, I think what we find is that once folks enter the field, uh, those same practitioners find themselves adapting to the environments that they enter. Uh, and, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, disempowering language still has a pretty significant hold in many spaces, although you know that, that tide, I think, is changing. And so I think if we're going to get over the hump and really, you know, kind of get to the point where uh, a majority of uh, the spaces that one can practice in, um, one doesn't have to kind of have that cognitive dissonance of disempowerment, uh, you know, being present in the language that they use. I think it's just, it's going to require some courage on the part of of new practitioners to say, you know, hey, look, I I went through my ethics courses and I went through my uh, um, theory courses. And, and, and I know that this language that we're using is not empowering towards the clients that we're serving. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, I'm going to stick up for my clients and enforce that change, uh, to happen, um, rather than adapting to the older, less empowering narratives and practices that they may encounter. Now, I know that's hard because when you're a new practitioner, uh, you know, you're at the bottom of the totem pole and, and you're, um, uh, you know, feeling pressure to adapt to a particular institution's language and uh, practices. Um, but we all know empowerment when we see it. We all know disempowerment when we see it. Um, and, you know, I, I think that we, if enough of us begin uh, demanding it and supporting one another in demanding it through supervision and consultation, um, I, I think we are at a turning point where we start to see some pretty significant changes in um, in the, the language and the approaches that are used. Um, at least that's my hope. I, I think you're right. I think it has to start smaller and grow. Um, and from we have to be willing to change. One of the things, maybe uh, maybe famously, maybe not, what Woodrow Wilson once said was, you want to make enemies? Try to change something. And he was absolutely correct. <laughs> um, because we've always done it this way, or this is what do you know. There's, there's a lot of pressure to conform with an organization's standards. Um, and that can be good or bad. We don't, mm -hmm. it, it's hard to tell. Um, in promoting not only critical views of the status quo, but challenging it, have you encountered much resistance from what we would say the majority? Honestly, no. You know, I, I've, uh, there are a number of ways that I've uh, challenged things, you know, within my, uh, my master's program, I, I, you know, regularly kind of brought up concerns about what was being presented in textbooks or in classroom presentations. And, uh, and, and, and found very, um, open responses, uh, to that feedback. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think it's as much about inertia, uh, as it is any real deep seated need to maintain the status quo. I, I use a particular, uh, analogy at, at times, uh, you know, to me, it's a lot like, um, replacing gasoline engines with electric vehicles, right? The the infrastructure is in place uh, throughout the country to support 
uh, gas-powered engines. Uh, the infrastructure to support electric vehicles has been lagging, and therefore, you know, it's taken a long time to kind of shift to get enough of uh, the infrastructure changed so that um, that change can happen. Um, and I, I feel like that's, you know, I, I see similarities in our movement from uh, kind of a, a, a homogenous way of um, viewing addictive behavior and and supporting those who struggle with it to to a true multiple pathways uh, um, approach. Um, and I, I think people are looking for individuals to lead the way and restoring full humanity to the work that we do uh, with individuals who are struggling with an addictive behavior. Uh, I think uh, you're you're a good example of that, Jeff, and I'm happy to be one of those people. Like I'm, I'm proud to be somebody who is saying, I think we need to continue to have these conversations and continue to uh, think about the words we're using and why um, in the service of of those we're, we're working with. You're really hitting on a chord for me because uh, I had an article published recently in Counselor Magazine uh, to talk about how Larry Kramer, who was one of my community organizing heroes, how one man learned how to use the system to change the way, you know, at the time it was AIDS, well, HIV and AIDS care is in this country, and to think where we're at now, because he fought so hard, the article was, who's going to be our Larry Kramer? Mm -hmm. Who's going to say the uncomfortable things that need to be said while people are making incremental gains? And and Kramer had this kind of thing going, uh, you know, with the people that he worked with. It was, including Dr. Fauci. Mm -hmm. Kramer said, I'm going to raise Kane. And Fauci would make the, because of his position, could only work on incremental changes. And so you do what you do, and Fauci said, yes, and you need to keep doing what you do because then it drives me to be able to do more work. And, it was, and we, we need to have that here. We know yep. that we can't wait on governments to change things. We have to do it, and somebody's got to stand up and be that person. Absolutely. One thing that you mentioned was your family groups, and I, and I want to talk about that for a little bit. So... Uh, how do you engage family members and affected others uh, when an individual seeks help from smart recovery? Yeah, uh, this is something I'm I'm particularly passionate about because I uh, have a, a some family history, uh, and and so um, I did not find uh, you know the I, I did not find the information that I got in uh, other groups that I tried. Um, helpful uh, back in the day when I was attending those meetings. And and what I love about our family and friends program is that it is a self-management program, just like our main four-point recovery program. Uh, so just as focused on self-empowerment. Um, and, and in our smart family and friends meetings, uh, affected family members and friends learn to take care of themselves, uh, to challenge their own unhelpful beliefs, uh, to practice positive communication skills, to set healthy boundaries, uh, to recognize when they're doing something counterproductive in the um, in their quest to to do something, um, to explore trust and forgiveness, uh, among other topics. And so there's there's no shame, no blame, no powerlessness, uh, just empowering skill building and the healing impact of the common humanity. Uh, that we experience when sharing space with others who are facing similar challenges with their loved ones. 
Um, so it's it's a program that I'm I'm really passionate about helping to grow uh, across uh, the country because we have many fewer smart family and friends meetings than we do regular four point recovery meetings, and uh, I think it's a, a missed opportunity when we're not engaging uh, family members and friends as much as uh, the individual who is is working to to change their addictive behavior. I like the approach to that, uh, to smart family and friends, because it, it was a conversation I had in this podcast a couple of years ago with Dr. Rod Weiss in Los Angeles, who challenges the term codependence and says, why are we punishing people for caring? And he calls it pro-dependence and says, it's much easier to say to someone, we see your passion to help that person. Let's find the healthiest way to do it. Yep. Instead of saying, no, you're wrong. Uh, yep. It becomes empowering and people want to be involved. In it. So I think you're, you're, whether fully aware of it or not, you're following it kind of exactly the route that he recommends uh, yep. as somebody with long history of family therapy. Uh, so how do people find out more about smart recovery and other empowering options? Yeah, uh, individuals can learn more about smart at smartrecovery.org, or we actually have a, a really great um, smartphone app uh, that can be downloaded from either the app store or the play store where folks can uh, search for meetings right from their phone. In some cases, they can link right through to an online meeting. Uh, there's also a, a library of tools on that app, as well as a, a library of videos and podcasts. Um, so uh, really excited about the app. I think that's uh, some something we're continuing to refine uh, what it's able to offer uh, to folks. Uh, we're, we're looking to make those tool experiences more interactive in the coming months. Um, and, and so uh, excited about that. Uh, and I would say as far as other empowering options for recovery, um, you know, first of all, every time I do a presentation to someone about um, smart recovery and mutual support groups, I'm always uh, mentioning, uh, you know, the the other uh, non-12th step uh, mutual support group uh, programs that are out there, like Life Ring and um, Dar Recovery Dharma, Refuge Recovery, uh, uh, Wellbriety, um, Celebrate Recovery, uh, etc. Um, you know, so I'm I'm always trying to to really. Uh, you know, not just say, "Hey, smart recovery is here and it's uh, great," uh, but you know, there's there's other options that may be a better fit for one reason or another. And it's again, I think if, if you're a a practitioner, I think it, you have an ethical obligation to uh, inform your clients about all those options, especially now that most of them have some online meetings available where geography isn't a limiting factor to accessing other recovery pathways. Yeah, that's um, one of the the good things that came out of, of having to cope with COVID is that we learned we can do things differently and do things effectively. Um, yep. So the person in central Montana can still link up with people and make sure that they are getting that mutual support and have friends that they can talk to uh, without having to worry about the, the difficulty of location. And I, th I think that's so important. I mean, I, f I forget what percentage of North Carolina's 100 counties are rural, but it's it's most of them. It might be like 85 of them or something, right? And and if you think about walking into a recovery meeting in a, a rural community, and I'm, let's say, an LGBTQIA plus individual, if there's no one else in the room with my lived experience, then being able to hop on an online uh, smart recovery meeting that's um, uh, specifically 
hosted for LGBTQIA plus individuals gives me a, a place where I know that I can safely, uh, you know, go and be my authentic self uh, as I pursue my recovery. And so I think it's a really important piece. Um, and I would just say we also we try to highlight other empowering recovery support options in our blog posts and our own podcast as well. And so um, if if folks do head out to our website or to our app, um, you know, there there's some often some other information, uh, you know, empowering options that are highlighted there. And I think something you mentioned is really the point of, of why I wanted to have this conversation for the podcast is there are options and we have an ethical obligation as professionals understand what those options are more beyond the name. And and to educate ourselves about whether the myths that we've heard about those other options are true or not. I do think that there's a number of of myths about smart recovery that that persist. Um and and I'm always happy to have the opportunity to sit down and talk with somebody and and say, you know, no, smart recovery is not anti-religion. We just don't have religious uh, language as a part of our program. Uh, if if someone on their self management journey, uh, you know, in a meeting talks about uh, a religious experience, that's there's no problem there. Uh, it's just not something that's baked into our program. Um, and and so you know, dispelling myths like that can be a really helpful thing to open up multiple pathways for folks. Yeah, and we recognize that the folks that we work with have different spiritual needs, uh, spiritual with a small S. And it yep. may be through a specific faith community. We've got to remember it's not our own specific episode works for them. So as much as having, an, uh, we have to understand all the resources that are available because there is a clinical case management piece with being a counselor to, to kind of help that client find what they see. Yep. Knowing we only had a short time for the discussion, is there anything we may have missed? I'm glad you brought up the myths. That was important. Uh, I, I think I'd, I'd just like to say thank you to those who've, who've listened to this episode and, and just mention that, you know, if, if anyone is interested in helping to get our self-empowering mutual sport group meetings available in their community, um, please don't hesitate to reach out to, to us, uh, to me. Uh, we are a small, uh, nonprofit organization of only 12 employees nationally. Uh, so we depend on partnerships with community-based organizations and individuals and communities around the country to help us make this option available. Um, and, and so really appreciate, uh, you know, you having me on, uh, to, to let folks know about this option so that if they're interested, they can, can help and us. If anyone wants to reach out, I do have some of the literature that you, uh, provided for us for the conference, what was left after the conference. So I'll be glad to get that, uh, to people as well. Uh, I want to say thanks. I really appreciate your time. I know it took us a while to schedule this because, you know, we have lives to lead, and things, but <laughs> we've had a little bit of a gap in the podcast for the month of June. So I'm glad we're going again in July. I enjoyed the time away. Uh, I'm glad to do so. Again, thanks for joining us, Pete. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, we, we hope you enjoyed the discussion today and that it helped to expand options for those in your care or at least pique your interest in some of those things. Um, again, I'd like to thank Pete Rubenhouse for joining us from North Carolina to share his thoughts and his experience. Thank you all for listening. And until next time, 